Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. As the supply chain challenge continues into 2022, many people are learning the importance of supply chain management and logistics for the first time. But there are a number of experts that have been hard at work on logistics and supply chain management for a very long time. Before this current situation began, and as we've seen throughout the pandemic, the extent to which American companies are innovating to get around the supply chain hurdle is pretty impressive. Where in the supply chain does technology stand to contribute the most? Could more shared data improve supply chain information flow and help enable more efficient logistics? On this episode of Explain to Shane, I learned more about the long tail of logistics planning from Dr. Glenn Ritchie, who is the new Harbert Eminent Scholar and Chair of Auburn's Center for Supply Chain Innovation. Glenn previously worked for 10 years in managerial positions for Scott Paper and Genuine Parts Company. Glenn has published over 80 articles in peer-reviewed scholarly journals since 2003 and has won numerous awards for his research. Glenn, welcome to Explain to Shane. You are the first department head of a newly created supply chain management program at Auburn. So tell us about the work that you're doing in the department and what Auburn University decided to they recalibrate some of the programs they have and realize there was just a need for this. Give, give us some background. Yeah, we have a very uh, interesting situation that's going on in, at Auburn, a really kind of unique and, and I will say wonderful situation for us and our students. We've had a program in logistics, supply chain management, and transportation probably since the early 1970s, I would say, and uh, it's grown organically over time. But as the, the the world's changed and as we've gotten more emphasis on global distribution and, and uh, lots of different points of the supply chain across the world, we've seen pretty significant growth in the program. So about six years ago, we were at about 180 students, and since that time, We've grown to 535 students in our undergraduate program alone. So industry has been calling for more education, people that uh, enter into the supply chain and those roles. And so we've been lucky enough to fill those roles. Now, when you hit 500 and something students, you really kind of have overblown being part of a different department. So we decided it was time to to build out from that and, and become our own group, which has allowed us to also expand our master's program, which is growing by leaps and bounds, and uh, put emphasis on our PhD program as well. There's some information out there that, that would say that something like 70% of the people that work in supply chain management don't have formal training in the area, which forces them to kind of start off and start out of the stumbling blocks instead of really racing through to where they need to be to make things happen. Our goal here is to try to give people a head start and help industry in the world. And certainly right now during the pandemic, we could use some help. So what was one of the major changes? You said it started in the 70s and obviously we're many years after that. Was it digitization of information or was there a a major change that made you realize that this needs to be more studied and, and bring people into the world who get it? You know, Amazon People love to call it a tech company, but the pinning under underneath pinning of it really is a logistics company. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You can say that about Amazon. You can say that about Walmart, and and a lot of the major players out there in the retail world have put a lot of emphasis in supply chain management and logistics for a couple of reasons. One is the efficiency that you can drive out of it that allows you to get prices down and play effectively and competitively in the marketplace. And the other is to just make sure you have the product on hand, you have a source of supply, and you're getting the customers what they want. Years ago, 1970s, we had a very much a production concept. If you build it, it will come. 
And the role of the supply chain and logistics people was simply to get this stuff on trucks and get it to where it needs to be. But but over time, that has become a more complex and dynamic situation. As you say, we, we're using technology to get things leaner, to focus more on what the customer needs and what the customer wants. And hopefully that reduces some of the waste in the system, makes us more sustainable, and allows us to really satisfy business partners and the customers overall. So COVID has brought supply chain management to the forefront for many reasons, but I'm sure you, you have better understanding than I do. I'm watching it on the, you know, the, the news, like Wall Street Journal did a great piece about what's going on in LA and just all these container ships that are sitting off the coast waiting to come in and the fact that there's no place for their, anything in those ships to go somewhere. So give us a thousand foot view of what you're seeing about the supply chain crisis and you know, if there are any underlying causes or you know, what are the effects that consumers and businesses are all managing right now? Yeah, there, there's there's so much uh, interesting stuff going on in this area, Shane. And and one of the things that that I enjoy is that I'm the co co editor of the Journal of Business Logistics with Dr. Beth Davis here at Auburn, and so we're seeing a lot of the research that's flowing through about best practices and things that are going on and kind of the dynamics of the environment. I can tell you that if we think back a couple of years, Donald Trump's administration was working to drop some tariffs into different countries with the idea that. The playing ground wasn't necessarily fair for the United States, and so they wanted to see some adjustment in, in how those tariffs were set up. And at that time, a lot of the manufacturing entities were able to see that there was going to be some level of disruption one way or another, whether it was an economic disruption that changed the way you priced out and made money off of products, or whether there were going to be some barriers, blockades, or quotas that restricted you from actually getting the job done. A number of those companies started to, to change and adjust from where they were actually sourcing their products. Some moved them away from China. Some moved them from away from other areas in the world. Some moved from single sourcing to, to kind of multiple sourcing. But then over time, we saw them kind of shift shift back, which was an, oh, no, let's, let's not do this. Let's think about contingency planning. So we saw some problems and some weaknesses across the global supply chains and the networks. But the reality is when the pandemic hit, it literally shut things down. It shut things down initially with labor as a whole, but specifically in raw material extraction and manufacturing, those two areas put a stop to anything that was flowing through the supply chain. And then what exacerbated that, or I guess added fuel to the fire of the problem, is that the ports dealt with a big capacity issue after we saw e-commerce explode. And we just don't have the truck drivers and, and labor on the road and in the warehouses to continue to move the product. So we're doing what we can to get up to pace. We're finding different ways to do different things. And it may take us a while to get it all streamlined. But the important thing to realize that is that we're talking about 30, 40 years of a focus on optimization and efficiency with not as much attention paid to Justin's case inventory, contingency planning, safety stock, and those types of things. Yeah, actually, I worked with the Secretary of Transportation really early. I'm actually right out of college. And we, they were showing us just-in-time delivery of car seats at GM. They had like a four-hour window. And I was like, wow, that is a lot of faith. Because <laughs> it's one of those, you know, but it was interesting to see where they were actually moving their facilities closer and closer to rail cars because they wanted to be able to make that nexus. And this was in the 90s. So it's been fascinating to watch that. So one of the things that I focus on is, you know, I do internet governance, but the whole concept of governance is very interesting to me. So you wrote for an academic journal, a piece about governance of the theory of supply chain management. So what, what does this mean? And, and how does this theory possibly help explain today's supply chain issues? 
Right. So, so there are several of us that, that work in the area of what we would call ro- relational governance, right? So we can think about governance in a number of different ways. For us, it's the, the relationships between the businesses and how they get their strategies together and then monitor each other's performance. Occasionally, you'll hear consultants, pundits kind of talk about supply chain relationships like they're a marriage. But, but let's be honest, if, if supply chain relationships are a marriage, it's a very bad one, right? There's a lot of looking around to see what other options are out there on the market. There are a lot of multiple partnerships and, and, and connections. So it really isn't so much as a, a marriage as it is a governance of a network of relationships. And, and where we look is at the point of integration. So what happens in the supply chain is these companies come together. They stay their own independent, independent entities, but their processes interrelate and interact in a way that in some ways they become connected singular businesses. And so what we'd like to see is the barriers to becoming integrated go away. And we'd like to see the facilitators that allow these companies to come together and work tightly and seamlessly to grow and, and to be fostered by those businesses. So barriers like communicating only in one direction, a kind of command control structure, being kind of incongruent in the things that you'd like to do as a business versus what your partner would do, and internalizing your strategy without working across those businesses are things that really add barriers to being able to integrate and strongly govern the relationship. What we'd like to see are businesses that are aligned in their thinking and their strategy that are structured in a way that the things really fit together, that the resources fit together, that communicate bi-directionally and build policy and forecasting out of that bi-directional communication approach, that are quantified in a way that we can say what we did worked and we know what our goals are in a quantified format, and then are interdependent on each other, knowing that if we work together in the right ways and continue to work through conflict in a functional way that builds better business, that we'll actually see all boats rise to the top. And so that's the idea behind relational governance is kind of leveraging those different things in a strategic fashion and then finding ways to monitor partners to make sure that everyone lives up to the expectations. So when I hear you say bi-directional, I'm thinking that they need to talk to each other. Um, yeah, yeah. I like the relationship part of that because you're like, that's very important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can give you, you know, examples from industry, even, even in my career, watching companies that transition from a very kind of, you will do this to suppliers or, or manufacturers saying, you'll take what we make and, uh, and you'll deal with it. And we've seen that change to much more of a, of a discussion, a communications uh, situation where even the customer is getting involved in the development of the product or the adjustment of the product to what they'd like to see fit. Interesting. So um, one of the things that I also focus on is cybersecurity. And when I'm thinking through that, I'm wondering how much information you're willing to put up into a network system and make sure that all of your partners are collaborating on that. Is that something you guys focus on at all? Just make sure that if you are using the, you know, the bi-directional flow, there's somebody who makes sure that that's all secure. Exactly. And, and you know, part of the, the real excitement about blockchain that has been out there now for quite some time, but not implemented in the ways that, that a lot of us would hope, is that it really did provide an opportunity for governance to be extended to the entire network. So the blockchain setup allows you to exchange this information, to have all of this good digitized stuff handy and available to what you, what you need to do to, to help you decide how your forecast should be set or what your next business partner should be. And companies have been a little slow to, to transition to blockchain for a number of reasons, one of which is that the more powerful industries or powerful players in the supply chain really don't want to give up that power. 
And that's what kind of this network governance approach does. Now, now, like you say, Shane, if we can get a lot of this digitized information into the into the blockchain and into the system, it's going to make us more effective. It's going to make us more efficient. But there is also a concern about how secure things are. And, you know, as you know, from cybersecurity, we don't want to give up our competitive advantage just by placing it out there on the web. Yeah, there's there's a whole theory of thought in there where while we're protecting our own supply chain and, and collaborating this, we've also encouraged China to be more self-sufficient. So that's another element to this too. So there's we're saying we're only going to take things from certain places and we want to make sure that they're secure. It's going to be fascinating to see how like you know China responds to that in some ways. But this podcast mostly covers tech. And when I think of tech firms and technology themselves, they are they are playing a unique role on this ongoing challenge with supply chain. And it's been written about, even though I've seen some, you know, people going back on this that, you know, Amazon, for example, has created its own integrated supply chain network that seems to have more efficiency by design. An integrated group like that, is that something that you guys are working to create for more companies other than Amazon, or is that a one-off? Well, okay. So that's a that's a really interesting move. And and I kind of expected to see some of the major players like Amazon, like like Walmart, like Target and the like look for ways to get a guaranteed source of distribution and supply so that they could make sure the products were in their facilities for this peak flow time of the year, the make or break time of the year for a lot of these companies. I do think that what you're seeing them do is make a shift towards what we call responsiveness above what we have traditionally focused on, which is optimization. And that what they're attempting to do is find ways to adapt the supply chain, make some pretty big moves grab some some guaranteed pieces of the supply chain like open ocean going shipping like warehousing those types of things and guarantee that they have that point of supply they're also doing some things with adjusting policy return policy shipping policy which allows them to be a little more flexible and expect to see them to do some things with their transportation and distribution systems that allow them to be agile to surprise changes that they may not see. Walmart's been a champion of this type of thing during disaster situations, being able to move different types of products to places where they need to be, hurricanes and water, terrible snowstorms and generators, those types of things, and being able to really be agile and adjust the processes. And so there are probably more of those things that we'll see happen. But I definitely think that what we're seeing in, in the pandemic and in this massive global kind of disaster situation is a move towards responsiveness. I love that you the Walmart example because they seem to always be good at contingency planning. <laughs> they, yeah. they just thought so many things through. So do you see a role of tech in all this? I mean, it's always great if everything works out perfectly, but life doesn't usually work that way, even in, even if you're really good at supply chain management. Are you guys, is that part of the process that you, you, you know, it's just like, it's the if then what scenarios, like here's 100% maximum and then here's the all the things that might possibly go wrong? Absolutely. And I can tell you that, you know, in our programs, we spend a significant amount of time getting students involved in technology. And we have partners that are related to our Center for Innovation that actually work to kind of tell us what type of tech the students need so that they'll be ready to go. I think, and, and, and you, you brought up in, I guess, an earlier podcast discussion of, of big data. You know, I think the access to big data and some of the analytical tools that we have today should allow us to do a better job with forecasting coming out of this. The unfortunate thing is when we see things like this, we see companies overbuy, we see the bullwhip effect drive a lot of inventory into different locations. I mean, quite honestly, we saw people panic buy toilet paper, which might send a ripple through that system and encourage companies to produce more than we really need to produce. 
hopefully the digitization and the information that's out there and the tools that we have will allow us to do a better job in forecasting so we can hit those demand numbers much better than we did uh, in this last time period. But I will also say that there's other technology. Artificial intelligence can, can help drive out some of the stakes we might make. Uh, certainly, there's opportunities for some of the material handling technology and the like, especially at the ports. But as you know, those things take time. Probably the, the, the quicker things that we can put into place are the things that relate to forecasting and information technology. Yeah, a recent Financial Times op-ed argued that the information on global logistics has suddenly become a lot more valuable, including those who produce what, where it is, when, and how to get it transported. So the whole idea of just the, the information on the supply chain has become you know, a real interesting value in the market. So could digitization streamline this process and prevent for future future issues as in nature? In the back of my head, I have to tell you, I'm always thinking about the wire in season two, where they were like grabbing certain things off of in, in the, the port and they were disappearing. And I'm always like, see, they couldn't do that now <laughs> because yeah. back then they were like, you know, like basically they were, they were going to the dark side. So is technology a good value on this? Is it hopefully, you know, speeding things up or making information more efficient? It absolutely is. And I, I think you can think about kind of a global supply chain that has a scenario where the product's being built in China, where the information technology group is in India, where the marketing planning group is in London, and where the parent company is in the United States. And and having access to the information that's needed across all of those steps is completely related to digitization. So even though the company may not be running, or each company may not be running 24 hours a day, the supply chain and the, and the unit of businesses that are put together are actually doing that. And so you can imagine you know, the, the number of phone calls and interactions that might need to have to take place but if there's digitization and there's a data warehouse that's accessible to those different businesses, then certainly they can move quickly. They can adapt quickly and make sure that they don't make mistakes. And so, yeah, it's going to have a big impact. It already is. I will say that uh, because of the value of the logistics data, some companies are, are being more careful about sharing it, which is something that it could have a negative impact. But, but certainly we're seeing an opportunity to be faster, to be more accurate and to reduce errors. And don't forget about the consumer side of this. The consumers are begging for this information. They want to know where the product come from. They want to know what the impact of their product is on the environment. They want to know where it is and be able to trace it. And they want to know what the company's approach to business is through the visibility of their overall strategy. And that's all related to this logistics data. Yeah, there's definitely a tremendous amount of transparency that has not been available for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Give us an idea of what it's like to be a student in one of your classes. Are you doing real-time case studies or, or like, what, what are you teaching? Yeah, so we do an, an introductory class that kind of gets all the students up to speed early in all of our programs. So it doesn't matter what the student's background is, whether they go into the undergraduate or the master's program, we can get them up to speed pretty quickly with kind of an overview of operations, logistics, supply chain management, transportation, and the like. After that, they they move into analytical-based classes, tool-based classes, the different things like that. So they'll, they'll hit a transportation class. They'll learn the, the technology that goes along with the transportation philosophy and strategy. They'll go into a purchasing class. They'll do the same thing with the technology that's there. We also have some focus courses that you know, teach them specific tech. And then as they move into their junior or senior year or, or later courses in the actual uh, master's program, they do a lot of field-based work. We have a significant amount of, of projects. We do a lot 
of industry outreach. And the reality is with the supply chain, things change so fast. If you're not doing that, you're not staying on top of, of what's going on in industry. Final thing I'll say on this is that we have a required internship for uh, our students. All 535 of them have to go through an internship. It allows them to get their hands on the job itself and make sure it's where they want to be. And something like 70% of those students end up taking jobs with those businesses before we graduate. So uh, it's a great opportunity. And they make pretty good money in those internships as well. And it's a real-world learning experience that gets them out of the books and gets them ready to go. That's fantastic. Well, I wish you lots of luck with this new programming. As I'm watching trucks go by my, my condo right now, I'm thinking about all the things that are on there and where they're going and where they're headed. And, and if you've got the right information, everybody would know that. So <laughs> I really appreciate you being a guest today on Explain to Shane. And I think we all appreciate supply chain management at a level that we, we may not have before COVID, but it's vastly important. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an important area. And the more people know about it, the better. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.